Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3. Various other frequencies which you'll find on our website, www.fmr.co.za. I'm Gory Bowes-Taylor, and thank you for joining us. It's very good to be with you. This joyful hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, gives us a grand bag of good books. Peter Soule declares his support for the DA and Muzi Mamani as he reviews Muzi Mamani, Prophet or Puppet, by Tembiso Nsomi. And Beverly Rose Muller was riveted by Raoul Wallenberg's incredible rescue expedition which saved the lives of tens of thousands of Jews in Hungary during the last months of World War II, the book is Raoul Wallenberg, the biography by Ingrid Karlberg. Shingai Darangwa, lifestyle feature writer for the Sunday Independent, takes an up-close and critical look at Bongani Madondo's Sai, the Beloved Country. Cindy Moritz found The Girls by Emma Klein just fabulous. Peter Todres reviews two books which deal with Jewish immigrants to South Africa, The Reb and the Rebel, edited by Carmel Schreira and Gwyn Schreira, and Married to Medicine, Dr. Mary Gordon, pioneer, woman physician and humanist, by Jack Metz and Gordon Metz. In December this year, it will be 20 years since Alison Burta was raped, disemboweled and left for dead. In 12 days, the movie, I Have Life, will be premiered around the country. Vanessa Levenstein reviews Alison's story, as told to Marianne Tam. It's called I Have Life. Then Vanessa reviews two novels, one by well-known, well-loved author Maggie O'Farrell, This Must Be the Place, the other by debut writer Kit Duval, My Name is Leon. Cape Town cookbook writer Philippa Schaefitz munches her way through Eat Ting, that's two words, by Impo Tsukudu and Anna Trepido, a good book that looks at diet, weight and health for modern black South Africans. Mike Fitzjames, as always, scares us out of our wits with three chilling thrillers. And if we have time, leading conservationist and author John Hanks walks us through Elephant's Giant Steps by Richard Pierce. As ever, there's an easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200 rand vouchers from Wordsworth Books. Andrew Marshbanks, a bag full of good books there from Wordsworth Books. Hi, Gary. Thanks a lot. Well, yesterday, on Sunday, was the launch of the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. There's a very strange history behind that, and I'm sure people have, have seen the publicity. It is the biggest book-selling event for the last 10 years, since the last Harry Potter came out, strangely enough. But this is not a novel. This is a play script of the play that is opening in London, I think this last weekend. And it is a publishing phenomenon, because never has a play script sold in such quantity all the way around the world, everyone's queuing for it. There are Harry Potter parties and sweets and hats and who knows what. But this is a play script, 
but it is the next chapter in the life of Harry Potter. That's Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. It's in our bookshops at 299, 299 rand, brought down from 375 rand, somewhere around there. So I think if anyone is interested in what's happened to Harry Potter after book number seven, that is the book that you have to have. And while we're talking about bestsellers, I don't know if anyone has seen the movie about the Jojo Moyes book, Me Before You, which was quite a, a weepy tearjerker. I enjoyed it thoroughly, I have to say. The book is out called After You, which takes you from what happened in, in the movie or what happened in Me Before You and brings you right up to date to what happened then. Her books are always gorgeous. They really are. They're lovely, lovely reading. And second on the bestseller list is the new book about Tabo and Becky called Tabo and Becky I Know. And anyone who's interested in Tabo and Becky and South African politics, that's a must read. And also another must read, I think. It's a new book by Lorato Shabalala. She is a columnist for, I think it's the, the Sunday Times, etc. And she writes the Urban Myths column. And she's this is a, a book about her time in South Africa. Let me just read this. This is a book not for the faint-hearted. I am a proud South African. I grew up in Soweto, went to a Model C high school, and have worked in corporate South Africa, where I've often been the only black person in senior management. There are many people who are like me, having to straddle different worlds daily. What this means is a white lady who has met a woman like me, a black guy who's dated a girl with a similar story to mine, and a white guy who's had someone like me to report to him. I am the quintessential South African, complicated, proud, and contradictory all at once. I am you as much as you are me. She's a wonderful writer, this woman. She really is. There are amusing tales in here. There are tales that will get your juices going, your mind stimulated. This is a wonderful book. The Way I See It, and it's 210 Rand, Lorato Shabalala. Then I must just remind you that a marvelous Harper Lee book, Go Set a Watchman, is now in paperback. So if any of you balked at spending 300 whatever it was Rand on the book, this is now available at 180 Rand. Let me just remind you, this is the story of what happened before To Kill a Mockingbird. So that's Go Set a Watchman, Harper Lee, at 180 Rand. Now, there are two books, charming books, that have just come out. The first one, The Curious Charms of Arthur Pepper by Phaedra Patrick. And this follows on that, that sort of slew of books we've had about old age people who do eccentric things. I'm not quite sure what the genre is called, but there is definite genre about that. Someone will come up with a very clever way of saying it. Listen to this. This is how the book starts. Each day, Arthur got out of bed at precisely 7.30 a.m., just as he did when his wife Miriam, Miriam was alive. He showered and got dressed in the gray slacks, pale blue shirt, and mustard tank top that he had laid out the night before. He had a shave and then one went downstairs. And this is how his life is living at the moment. And then, of course, the disruption happens. He finds something. He goes, sorts through his wife's wardrobe, and he finds a glistening gold charm bracelet that he's never seen before. Upon examination, Arthur finds a telephone number on the underside of the gold elephant. He picks up the phone and dials. And the adventure starts. Great reading. Lovely book. And another one in that genre, I don't know if you all remember 
the 100-year-old man who climbed out of the window and disappeared. Huge, great success. They made a nice movie out of it. This is by Jonas Jonasson, and I think he came out to South Africa once to talk about the book. This is called Hitman Anders and the Meaning of It All. Lovely reading, beautifully translated. This is a book that any book club will enjoy. If you're into that genre of the old age people who get really odd, this is for you. 305 Rand, Hitman Anders and the Meaning of It All, Jonas Jonasson. And the book I talked about before, The Curious Charms of Arthur Pepper by Phaedra Patrick, that is 310 Rand and well worth reading. Thanks a lot. Keep reading. Cheers. Peter Sell, Muzi Mamani, Prophet or Puppet by Tambiso Musumi. Get your vote. Musi Maimani, Prophet or Puppet by Stembiso Msomi, is published by Jonathan Ball, and at the outset, I should declare my interest as I am a supporter of the DA and of Musi Maimani. Stembiso Msomi is a political journalist currently based at the Sunday Times, where he is deputy editor, and is of the view that black reporters are at the forefront of breaking headline political stories but are largely absent when it comes to recording our history in book form. This short, informative, 166-page volume is his contribution to correcting that deficiency. Nsormi goes behind the scenes to examine how and why Maimani rose up to head the opposition and delves into his formative years, his time at the pulpit in the church, and his family and to bring substance to the man. Maimani is the first of four children born to Simon and Ethel Maimani in June 1980. Simon is a Motswana from the Bufferking clan in what was the apartheid homeland of Baputatswana, and Ethel hails from Kofenwaba in the former Transkai. Maimani is very proud of his mixed ethnic heritage, his proficiency in seven official languages, and his mixed marriage, but the former homelands played no significant part in his life. Friends describe the young Musi, which means leader in Tswana, as a typical township boy playing football in the afternoons, attending to his house chores, and heading home before dark to attend to his homework in the house in Dobsonville, where his parents still live. Being devout Catholics, they brought him up in the faith, but he switched in his mid-teens to what is known as a more Bible-based church, where he played a leading role. After matriculating, Maimani studied at Witz and then at UNISA by correspondence for a psychology degree. He worked for a while at the SABC where he presented a Christian magazine program. He became known as a talented public speaker and joined speakersinc.co.za where he prospered. He joined the DA in 2010 and was elected leader in 2015, creating a special place for himself with hard-hitting eloquence. While not restricting his criticism of Jacob Zuma, calling for his impeachment and describing him as a broken man, he has done so with dignity and with respect for the office of the presidency and with respect for his elders. And so, puppet or prophet? Maimani has been the leader of the DA for just a year and has crisscrossed the country to promote his vision of the DA. Maimani emphasizes the need to tackle unemployment and to create jobs. Job creation is one of his passions, 
and he makes this a central focus in all his speeches. This and the promotion of the small business sector, which he argues creates more jobs than larger companies. Maimani has undertaken major research to reduce the size of the cabinet from 35 to 15, which includes reducing the number of deputy ministers, luxury cars, bodyguards, first-class fights, and, he says, will save 4.7 billion rands a year. He also emphasizes with statistics to back up his claim that life is easier where the DA governs. Nsomi concludes by offering Maimani the advice he should concentrate on building the DA's reputation as the only party big enough to take on the ANC. He needs to bear in mind that the local government elections this week are a dress rehearsal for 2019. He needs to show voters the DA has changed to become a party for all, that he is the man in charge and that he is no puppet. The voters will decide on Wednesday. Beverly Rose Muller, you were much moved by Raoul Wallenberg, the biography by Ingrid Karlberg. He may not be as famous as Oscar Schindler, but he should be. Raoul Wallenberg's incredible rescue mission saved the lives of tens of thousands of Jews in Hungary during the last five full months of World War II and cost him his life. He was born into the rich Swedish Wallenberg dynasty in 1912, shortly after his father had died, and he was educated abroad and traveled widely, including Cape Town, to gain business experience. Sweden was neutral during World War II, so there was little to foretell his heroic destiny. Yet he volunteered to go into Hungary during the last desperate months of 1944 in order for him, one single man, to do what he could to avert the massive humanitarian crisis there. Hungary had managed to avoid the excesses of Nazi brutality up till then, but Germany had seized control and Adolf Eichmann was determined to kill all of Hungary's Jews. By the time Wallenberg arrived in Budapest in mid-1944 as a Swedish special envoy with ambassadorial status, 400,000 Jews had already been deported to the death camps with more still waiting in peril of their lives. Wallenberg immediately swung into action. He produced thousands of protective passports, dodgy but effective Swedish documents, to any Jew who had the slightest connection to Sweden and increasingly those who did not. He bought up 32 buildings, hung outsized Swedish flags outside them and moved in thousands of Jews, giving them shelter and hiding. He also employed hundreds of Jews as administrators in a daring smoke-and-mirrors operation that befuddled the local officials. Wallenberg ran down platforms and jumped onto the trains themselves, carrying Jews to their certain death, showering his passports to anyone he could reach, astonishing the guards. Towards the end of his own Hungarian stay, as the Russians drew ever closer, he and his assistant slept in different places each night to avoid arrest. When the Russians finally arrived, an event he had hoped would stop the Jewish deportations, Wallenberg voluntarily went to meet the general in charge, trusting that, that he would be protected, not knowing that Stalin had ordered his arrest. He was taken to Moscow by train and disappeared into the Lubyanka prison. And from then on, his disappearance became one of the great unsolved mysteries of World War II. His anguished family, including his mother, searched for him for decades 
with very little help from Sweden. At the end of the Cold War in 1989, his siblings were invited to Moscow, and to their astonishment, they were presented with a box containing a few of Wallenberg's belongings, including his diplomatic passport diary and Hungarian driver's license. They received a sort of an apology, but no real explanation, and it is now widely believed that he was kept alive in prison until 1947, when he was killed probably by lethal injection. In 1981, he became only the second person after Winston Churchill to be made an honorary United States citizen through a bill introduced in Congress by Tom Lantos, whom Wallenberg had saved. It seems that his chief motivation throughout his life was that of simple humanitarianism. Kofi Annan, who married Wallenberg's niece, writes in an introduction to this biography that Wallenberg, through his own personal initiative, responded to the Nazi bureaucratic killing machine by forming one of the war's most effective rescue missions. He was one of the most inspiring figures of the 20th century. This is his story. It deserves to be read. Shingai Durangwa, you loved Bongani Melandi's Sai the Beloved Country. Sai the Beloved Country is a fascinating journey through the ideas and thoughts that shape the world as Bongani Madondo sees it. In it, he explores race, music, religion, culture, and the politics that partners them. I find it endlessly exciting and maddening to be South African right now, he says. Sai is Madondo's State of the Nation address, if you like, where he paints a colorful picture of this magical and crippling country. The first part of the book is, naturally, titled Race. I say naturally because Madondo has built a bit of a reputation as an uncensored advocate for black empowerment. He recently penned an article for the Sunday Times headlined, We Don't Need White Liberals to Speak for Us, in which he suggested that author Lauren Bukas, who had ushered disgraced apartheid headman Eugene de Kock out of a literary event after a number of black people took offense at his presence, had assumed unearned moral high ground over de Kock and, in doing so, had claimed the agency and urgency of black people to do things for themselves. He certainly isn't one to mince his words. In Sai, Madondo plays the role of a traveler, observer, critic. It is the feel of a travelogue, each part traveled in a different time zone at a different speed by a conflicted traveler. He's in a Shabin eavesdropping on strangers' conversations, cradling his bottle of Hansa Pilsner and, at times, skulking around city streets. Despite the comfort and ease with which he engages on a range of topics, Madondo seems most at ease when he's discussing music. He has a broad background as a music critic, provides layered, well-researched observations about iconic figures such as Kanye West, Solange, and impeccable pieces on Brenda Farsi, Miriam Akeba, and Zahara. His tale about a night out onboard hip-hop artist WHP's tour bus and the fracas that accompanies their late arrival at a gig is a standout passage in this book. Madondo litters his stories with colorful references from a knowledge bank that seems as extensive as it is imaginative. His observations are not vague. He digresses to unveil a side story that drifts away from the topic and takes you to another world. The world as Bongani Madondo sees it. Cindy Moritz, you used the word fabulous to describe The Girls by Emma Klein. What a pleasant discovery, the voice of Emma Klein. 
In this, her debut novel, she writes around a subject that has consumed her for decades and which inspired her short story, Marion, which I found and read before starting The Girls. The clue to Klein's focus is the title of the book. In an interview with the Paris Review, she reveals that she's deeply interested in the moment on the cusp of adulthood when we encounter how the world treats women and girls and what it means to be a girl in the world. The Girls is loosely based on the infamous Manson murders, spearheaded by Charles Manson, an American criminal who led what became known as the Manson family, a quasi-commune that emerged in the California desert in the late 1960s. But the book isn't really about the man, Charles Manson, at all. Rather, the women around him over whom he wielded enormous influence. In Klein's story, he's reduced to a wretched character portrayed as a failed musician named Russell, who gathers around him a circle of devotees. The story rather focuses on Evie Boyd, who at the age of 14 is captivated by one of the older girls in the circle when she notices a group of them carefree and careless in the park at the start of her summer. It's this scene that opens the book, although the reader must wait to discover its relevance. Lonely and thoughtful, Evie is mesmerized by Suzanne, the older girl who draws her into the circle of what will become the cult led by Russell. The eerie, sprawling ranch in the northern California hills is exotic and fascinating for the young Evie, who is looking for a place in the world. She spends more and more time away from her recently divorced mother and her regular life, all the while unknowingly edging closer to a dangerous crossroads where all innocence could be lost forever. She could also easily have played a part in the gruesome murders that would ultimately expose the cult. The novel opens in the present with an adult Evie staying at a friend's beach house. Her memories of 1969 are triggered by an unexpected house guest. Klein says in the Paris Review interview that for her the only way to project ahead into the project was from a starting point of having an older narrator. She said, It's funny because I think people respond most to the 1960s section since it's the bulk of the book and it's the most immediate, but for me, the older character is more interesting. I think about her growing up in Northern California where there was this flash of idealism in the 60s and then in the intervening decades, people have had to bear out that idealism to whatever ends. I'm interested in the way people navigate the space between idealism and where you end up. For her, the reflection on Evie's own story from an adult perspective was a way to imbue the character's 14-year-old self with depth to make sense of her teenage emotions and give her experience context. Ron Charles, books editor of the Washington Post, said, For a story that traffics in the lurid notoriety of the Manson murders, The Girls is an extraordinary act of restraint. With the maturity of a writer twice her age, Klein has written a wise novel that's never showy, a quiet, seething confession of yearning and terror. Evie alludes to those infamous murders only with long-simmering shame and hushed amazement at how accidentally a life can split toward or away from disaster. The Girls is way more than a historical account of the Manson murders. In fact, this could just be a side note, a kind of context for a far broader exploration of the nature of girls, their friendships, and how they relate on the cusp of adulthood. I thought this was a stellar debut.
Stella Debus, I like that. And uh, here again is our competition question to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Wednesday, August the 3rd, is the day you could get a nail painted. Would this be at the Crazy Cape Carnival? Would it be at a polling booth? Do ring us with your answer on 021-401-1013. Philip Todra's Recovering History, two books. And as always, you're reviewing without taking a note. Well, the books are so good. Why do I need to take notes? They, <laughs> they resound very strongly. In fact, I think what is very interesting to me is this whole concept of history. And both of these books find the story in history. I think we often too often forget and think it's all about dates. And in fact, I think it's rather about reclaiming stories and giving it a context. And both books, for me, did just that. The first is The Reb and the Rebel, Jewish Narratives in South Africa, 1892 to 1913, and it's edited by Carmel Schreerer and Gwyn Schreerer, finding their history in their, I think, great-grandfather's texts, one of which is a diary, another an epic poem, and then the one son writes a memoir. And through that, you trace a very important history at the end of the 19th century. Grandfather Rajan in 1892, and the other one is the story of Mary Gordon, and the title is Married to Medicine, Dr. Mary Gordon, Pioneer Woman, Physician and Humanist, and the book is written by Jack Metz and Gordon Metz. And again, a lot of research done to finding out who are these people and what is the context of their times. And what is very important to me is you're dealing with them overcoming difficulties and prejudices. And aren't we doing just that in this day and age as far as this mass migration of refugees, people trying to find other homes, trying to fee- find a better education, better jobs? I think it's very important to recount that a lot of these people make major contributions to the new countries in which they arrive. The Reb and the Rebel. Here's this man from a rabbinical background comes to South Africa to take a position in pioneer Johannesburg in 1894. So first of all, the diary records very meticulously even the number of miles, nautical miles, to go each day on this particular journey, having left his family behind in the hope of establishing a base in Johannesburg and then bringing them across. And the man arrives in Johannesburg and is not impressed by the community he finds. Here is this traditional man who comes from this background of orthodoxy and people already being assimilated, people having to deal with realities of life and living in this pioneer village of Johannesburg. And he is very scathing in the way he finds things and he's not prepared to accept these compromised attitudes. And he's also dealing with what he calls English orthodoxy, which is not the same as his European roots. And he really is very, very critical of all this. In fact, decides he's not prepared to compromise and moves back to Cape Town on his way back to Europe. But in Cape Town, he's offered a job. And from there, he decides to stay. And this is the story of him actually coming to terms with the reality of a new life, a new position, uh, bringing his family across. And then, quite strangely, because of the flu epidemic, he takes the family back to Europe and then returns again. And son is born. And this is the rebel because he is the South African now, born and bred in, in Cape Town. And... They pick up that history in a memoir that Harry Schreerer wrote many years later. He's actually a grown man at that stage, but he recalls his quite wild youth in Cape Town. 
Then the other one that I want to refer to is Marriage and Medicine, Dr. Mary Gordon. A most astounding story. Here is a woman born in 1890 who eventually goes to England in 1907 where she registers and studies medicine. Now, I mean, this is such a far-fetched story that it just wouldn't work in fiction. And yet she manages to... She has a Polish-Russian background, learns English in six months, and then manages to get into the medical school of the University of Durham. I mean, it's a most extraordinary story. Comes to South Africa. She now already has some experience in the medical corps. This is war years. They even needed women, women doctors. And she comes to South Africa, where she becomes a very famous, well-known educator and physician and many, many stories about what she's done. It's a fascinating story. And I think her comment, life is a battle, Mary Gordon said once, not for yourself, but for what you believe is right and truthful and necessary. A fitting tribute to perhaps the way we should conduct our lives. Vanessa Levenstein, three books there. One, non-fiction. Two, fiction. This Must Be the Place by Maggie O'Farrell. Maggie O'Farrell is one of my favourite modern authors, a brilliant storyteller. O'Farrell's characters are authentic, flawed, sexy and memorable. She has the ability to crawl into the minds of her characters. The result? One feels as if Maggie O'Farrell has lived a hundred different lives. This must be the place lived up to my expectations, an absorbing read that has at the centre the relationship between an American linguist, Daniel Sullivan, and his Parisian ex-film star, now reclusive wife, Claudette. Following a bitter divorce, Sullivan lost custody of his two children and his life savings. In need of a distraction, he journeys to Donegal Island to reclaim his grandfather's ashes. While driving along a deserted country road, he meets the enigmatic Claudette and her young son. They meet again, symbolically at a crossroads, and go on to marry and have two children. Yet, that's only the beginning. Both Daniel and Claudette have a past life they would rather forget. At the height of her fame, Claudette, with her baby in arms, walked out on her partner fame and the world at large. Aided by her brother, she saw privacy and refuge in a remote farmhouse in Ireland. One could nitpick here and say, how could someone, a famous actress in the age of the internet, just disappear? Yet O'Farrell makes a convincing argument. Daniel's past not only includes his two children from his first marriage, but prior to that a lover, Nicola Janks, whom he is haunted by. Was he responsible for her untimely death? And now this is a question that two decades later he needs to answer. This must be the place is true form O'Farrell, a host of interesting supporting characters, and it's where the mysterious is intertwined with the mundane, as her characters embark on a quest to discover their true place in the landscape of love. My next book is called My Name is Leon. It's Kit Duvall's first novel, and one need only read about Duvall's background to understand her choice of subject matter. The author's mother was a foster carer, and Kit Duvall herself worked for years as a magistrate and sat on adoption panels. The responsibility to make the best possible decision for children already so vulnerable must have heightened her awareness as to what can either go very wrong or at best moderately right. My Name is Leon starts with a nearly nine-year-old Leon meeting his newborn brother Jake. His mother, Carol, hopes that the baby's father, her one-time boyfriend, will embrace his role as father and partner. This is not to be, and his subsequent rejection, coupled with her already frail psychological makeup, results in Carol's mental breakdown. 
Leon assumes the role of caregiver to his mother and infant brother. Social services are notified, and so the foster process begins. Now, this isn't the first time Leon has been placed in foster care, but now it's different because he has a brother to love, look after, and protect. While Leon is a mixed-race young boy, his brother is white and a baby. Bluntly put, Jake is easy adoption material, Leon not. The heartbreaking separation of the siblings raises questions that don't have clean-cut answers. The elderly sisters who foster Leon, while hardly child psychologists, are kind and want to help him, albeit rather clumsily. They fail to understand his loyalty towards and longing for his mother. Duval paints an authentic picture of the bond between Leon and his mentally unstable mother. Her inability to care for her sons does not diminish her love for them. My name is Leon gives a face and voice to so many abandoned, nameless children. Of course, it's not just young children who are prey for sociopaths. My final book that I'm reviewing today is I Have Life, Alison's Journey as Told to Marianne Tam. 1994, the beginning of our new democracy, and also the year of a watershed event that changed the way South Africans engaged with the atrocity, rape. Alison Boerter was raped at knife point by two men, disemboweled, her throat slit, and left for dead. Only she didn't die. She clung to life with a determination that defied medical logic. In a culture where rape survivors remained anonymous, Alison was one of the first women in South Africa who chose to speak openly about her ordeal, and thus laid the path for many to follow. I Have Life, Alison's Journey, is her courageous testament to her survival, her strength, and transformation. I could surrender my life to those total strangers who had tried to kill me, or I could honor myself and find a new meaning to my life. She finds meaning, strength, and miracles. As an international public speaker, Alison has inspired thousands. A play has been produced based on the book and now a film. To coincide with the film's release, Alison, a triumphant true tale of monsters, miracles, and hope, Penguin has republished the book with an additional chapter. As with Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, I Have Life should always remain in print. Alison's journey is one where hope triumphs over despair. Now more than ever, her story is one that needs retelling. Philippa Schaefitz, a cookbook with an enticing, amusing cover. It's called Eat Ting. Two words, Eat Ting. Well, Eat Ting by Mapur Shakudu and Anna Trapida. It's published by Quiver Tree and it sells at 320 rand. Now it's a serious subject, teaching the urban black woman how to eat well and avoid bad food choices that can lead not only to obesity, but with it the health problems of high blood pressure, diabetes and even heart disease. But there's a delightful quirkiness about the treatment of the subject. The title of the book, Eat Ting, two words, clever, as ting also refers to the basis for the traditional mafokotso porridge. The design of the book, too, is witty. On the front cover, Mapo with a cell phone and gilt-framed picture of an African cooking pot. On the back, Anna, flower-crowned, sips a speckworm garnished Bloody Mary. Yes, there are recipes for cocktails. Sakuda researched African foods and their nutritional values, traditional methods of food preparation, and introduced them into wellness programs. She has a degree in dietetics. 
It doesn't mean, says Mapo, that you can or should eat traditional African food every day. But don't disregard this healthy way of eating in the fight against excess fat. Mapo gives practical tips on how to include the best of traditional cooking into a modern lifestyle. She's appealingly chatty and pragmatic. The text is lively with lots of anecdotes. Trapida has a doctorate in food anthropology and is a trained chef. The recipes using traditional African grains, sorghum and millet, are innovative. Sorghum with great nutritional value, low GI and more antioxidants than blueberries is used for a polenta with bacon and spinach and a risotto with mushrooms and walnuts. Millet, also nutritionally rich, gluten-free, high-fiber, low-GI, is used for a millet tabbouleh with cumin, lemon, parsley, and mint. Libby Doyle, creative director and co-publisher, tells me that the food prepared for photography was absolutely delicious. There are recipes using cow peas, an indigenous black-eyed bean, maize and wheat are included, perfectly acceptable in moderation, keeping to the unrefined and avoiding industrially processed products. Amadumbis, pumpkins, sweet potatoes and beetroots are traditional flavoured vegetables. While starchy, they are lower in GI and higher in fibre and nutrients than refined starches. Morogo refers to a collection of African leafy vegetables, not specifically spinach. Meat and much-loved offal plays a small part in the traditional diet. Slow-cooked with little added fat, and naturally grass-fed and free-range. There are good recipes in this section, mostly updated. Desserts are few, fresh and fruity. Together, they explored the singular difficulties associated with diet, weight and health for modern black South Africans. But it would be a mistake, says Anna, to assume that this book has nothing to offer other sorts of South Africans and indeed people all over the world. The cover promises weight loss. And not only can I lose weight, but can gain health and find myself. The authors insist that it is not a diet book, but a blueprint for a healthy lifestyle. Okay, Mike Fitzjames, do your wicked worst to chill us. Good afternoon, Gary. I have three excellent books for your listeners, each different but all highly interesting. My first choice is a Swedish serial killer thriller, beautifully translated and very atmospheric. The title is The Man Who Watched Women by Jort and Rosenfeld at the height of a heat wave which grips Stockholm. A series of women victims are found brutally murdered and the overworked criminal investigation department is confused by the fact that the murders bear all the hallmarks of Edward Hyde, a serial killer jailed by profiler Sebastian Bergman some 15 years earlier. Sebastian himself needs some order in his otherwise chaotic lifestyle and the revelation that he has a daughter, Vanya, could provide long-needed stability. His real problem is whether, in telling her the truth, 
he may be destroying her life and also her career. Once Sebastian forces his way into this new investigation, he quickly learns that the murders are indeed connected to him and that now no one around him can be safe. This is a relentlessly exciting and intelligent thriller which captivated to the very end. My second choice this month is A Time of Torment by John Connolly. John Connolly and his central character, Charlie Parker, need little introduction. Together with Charlie's sidekicks, Lewis and Angel, they have caused mayhem, solved crimes, and dealt with great evil while gripping readers in a vice of interest. Jerome Burnell was once a hero. He intervened to prevent multiple murders, but in doing so, damned himself. His life was ripped apart, and subsequently he was imprisoned and brutalized. In his final days, with the unknown hunters circling, he tells his whole story to private detective Charlie Parker. He tells him of the girl who was marked for death, but was saved, of the criminals who tormented him, and the strange cause that they served. Parker is not at all afraid of evil things and confronting the abusers in life. Once more he prepares to wage war. His first move is to gather his support group and descend upon the strange, isolated community called the Cut, which is located in West Virginia. There he determines to face down the forces of hillbilly men who rule their part of the state through terror, intimidation, and murder. Read on and enjoy the perfect nerve-teasing entertainment. My final choice is Dark Forces by Stephen Leather. A violent South London gang stands to be destroyed if Dan Spider Shepherd can obtain enough evidence of their operations while he poses as a ruthless hitman. Unfortunately, what he doesn't know is that his undercover work for MI5 is about to clash with the biggest terrorist operation ever carried out on the soil of mainland Britain. Only a matter of weeks previously, Shepard had witnessed a highly skilled ISIS sniper escape a targeted missile strike in Syria. The last thing he expected at the time was to actually encounter the same sniper again, if ever. But at least of all, in a grim East London flat, Spider is now forced to proceed with utmost caution if he is, somehow, to prevent carnage and the death of hundreds of innocent people. At the same time, when the crucial moment arrives, he will have to act quickly and decisively. Now the clock is ticking, and he alone stands between his country and Armageddon. What a gripping read. That's it for this month. My choices were The Man Who Watched Women by Yort and Rosenfeld, A Time of Torment by John Connolly and 
and Dark Forces by Stephen Leather. Enjoy your reading. All the best. John Hanks, we, I think, chatted you, was it last month, about your book, Operation Lock, The War on Rhino Poaching. But you're now very kindly going to review another animal book for us, and it's called Giant Steps, and it's by Richard Pierce. Well, thank you very much for asking me to do this. I, I don't think that anyone reading Giant Steps would question that Richard Pierce was not genuinely moved by the work done to rescue and rehabilitate young elephants that were spared in the culling of their family unit, which took place in the Kruger National Park over 20 years ago. His text is full of emotion, and understandably, the detailed account of an elephant cull does not make pleasant reading. This is the start of part one of the book, a narrative mainly about Bully, a young elephant that was not shot and killed by the park management staff, but taken into captivity with the intention of exporting him with other young calves to zoos. But Bully was kept in South Africa under the care and attention of John and Jenny Broker, and because of his very tractable nature, he appeared in nearly 30 films and photo shoots. He was eventually released into a fenced private game reserve in the Tankwa Karoo, a move which was described by Pierce as the giant steps of elephants that had not graced this area for over 200 years. Now, I must confess at the start that as a zoologist, I found the anthropomorphism of what Pierce called, and I quote, an elephant narrative difficult to accept. For example, at the sound of a helicopter approaching a family unit, he writes, Bully was miserable. He sensed his mother's uncertainty, and he knew that every elephant in the group felt it too. And then, when the culling started and Bully's mother was immobilized but still fully conscious, he writes, she watched, blinked, and it seemed that a tear rolled down as she felt her son's confusion and distress. Now, I know this sort of writing will appeal. There is, of course, no doubt of the elephant's intelligence, but there's always a danger of ascribing human qualities to non-human entities. Can we be sure that a mother-infant bond is anything more than instinct to prolong the parent's genes? As many scientists have said, animals cannot really think because they do not have verbal language. But the challenge Pierce and others have set demonstrate that animals can think without words. I will leave that choice of the readers on this one. John Steps is a profusely illustrated book. There are some great photographs which I know will have emotional appeal, but rather too many of them are the same, and some others that are really unnecessary, such as an empty road leading to and from a car site. Part two of the book is much shorter and delves into aspects of elephants in captivity and elephant population management. Here I have some fundamental disagreements with the author, who, although hinting at the problems of land transformation and restricted opportunities for elephants to roam freely in Africa, fails to address the fundamentally important issue of a realistic and sustainable financial strategy for elephant survival. The reality is that elephants will not survive when living next to rapidly growing communities that are wracked by extreme poverty and 
and increasing starvation. Giant steps are required to address these threats as a matter of the highest priority. And that's it then. Thank you for your company. Thank you for your telephone calls. Today's uh, winners, just look at this paper. Today's winners, Rosemary Magid, it looks like, and Steve Thomas. We'll be ringing you straight after this. Do stay next to your telephone. It's Matinee up next with Sharon Swimmer and Amanda Burta's book kisser at this same time on Wednesday, August the 17th. All of today's book choice will be podcast on www.fmr.co.za. From production manager Mawandi Lobi, from musical mastermind Rick Everidge, and from me, Gory Bowes-Taylor, it's good reading. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers. And we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FM.